Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberate.it using the discount code PODCAST. You're listening to the 401 Access Denied Podcast. I'm Mike Rowan, VP of Engineering and CISO at Cyberate. Please join me and my co-host, Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic, as we discuss the latest news and attempt to make cybersecurity accessible, usable, and fun. Be sure to check back every two weeks for new episodes. Hey, welcome back to another episode of 401 Access Denied. Uh, Today, we'll be talking to Steve Jacobs about uh, OT, operational technology, uh, and scientific sensors. Um, I'm your co-host, Mike Gruen, VP of Engineering and CISO here at Cybrae. And once again, joined by Joe uh, from Thycotic. Hi, everyone. Joe Carson here again. And welcome back to another episode of Access Denied. And uh, I'm you know, Chief Security Scientist from Thycotic and uh, excited to, to get introduced uh, with Steve. So Steve, you want to give us a bit of introduction about who you are and what you do? Hi. <laughs> I, uh, my name is Steve Jacobs. Uh, I work on a large-scale ecological science program called NEON. Uh, we have a website at neonscience.org. Uh, we collect ecological instrumentation and observational uh, data, as well as remote sensing data at 81 field sites across the continental United States, Puerto Rico, Alaska, and Hawaii. Uh, that culminates in about 5 billion sensor readings a day. Uh, we collect about 400 to 600 terabytes of remote sensing data a year as well. So uh, not a lot of data. So not, not much. No, no, <laughs> not, not much. Um, so, I mean, when I say ecological uh, sensors, everything from, you know, meteorological sensors like air temperature, humidity, mm-hmm. and barometric pressure to things like uh, soil water content and salinity, uh, pH, stream flow. Uh, we have these eddy flux measurements that are really crazy that, that measure sort of the, the soil breathing with the ecosystem. And uh, we get things from like once every 10 seconds to 40 times a second, depending on the type of sensor. All kinds of crazy stuff. Well, so what's, what's the use cases? Can I, so how, how would that data be used ultimately? Is it for agricultural reasons? Is it for weather? Is it for so, transportation, traffic, logistics, what's, what's the main uh, use cases there? So NEON was one of the, I guess, the grand challenge things that were formed by NSF. Uh, the idea is that we just collect ecological data distributed to folks mm-hmm. doing research. So we're prohibited from doing ecological forecasting or anything like that. But the idea is to use that information to, to validate or build models for climate change. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why there's such a wide variety of information that we record. I mean, I didn't talk much about the observational stuff, but they do things like track mosquitoes, mm-hmm. uh, send them off to labs for DNA pathology analysis and all kinds of really crazy stuff, trying to sort of um, provide one place where you can get data from multiple different areas of ecology and then use that uh, as the basis for science. Okay. And do you... Do you um, Use is it all your own sensors, or do you actually bring in third parties? Because I know here I'm, I'm based in Tallinn, Estonia, and there is a company that's based here, which is Planet IO, and they did a similar type of thing where they created a platform for basically um, anyone in, in, for example, in maritime and marine, so that they can actually take their own sensors and then upload it into their, let's say, algorithms for basically statisticals and and analysis. 
Um, so is it all your own sensors or do you actually bring in third parties and, uh, and others and correlate it together? I think it sort of depends on how you define sensor. So okay. we have our own data logging platform. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't use Campbell loggers or things like that. Not that they wouldn't work. They would work fine. It's just that we have 10,000 of them and they don't auto configure and they don't you know, report back and that sort of stuff. So, um, but for the most part, the probes and the things that are mm-hmm. used to do the sensing are not things that we design. Um, we use sort of um, like a steering committee that figures out what the most appropriate mm-hmm. use is and what the scientific protocol is that needs to be done and tolerances and things like that. So some things like uh, most of our temperature measurements are done through the use of platinum resistive thermometers. Mm-hmm. And they provide a resistance measurement that's calibrated. And then those calibration coefficients are used to turn it into temperature. But we don't manufacture the PRT. We just uh, make the cable harnesses and things that attach it. Uh, okay. Other things like uh, we have this uh, ring down cavity spectrometer from a company called Picaro. <laughs> and that thing does all its own stuff. But we interface with the protocol it provides to pull the data back. And there's no data logger involved. It just talks over Ethernet to the device itself. Mm-hmm. So it just really depends on what it is. We're not going to go make a ring down cavity spectrometer, I assure you. <laughs> and you don't have any third parties that are putting like any not like everything, all of those sensors, you guys basically own that stuff, right? There's not, you're not now. getting in. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, 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 there's talk of, because we have these sites, you know, our networking team has it pretty rough and they're basically like an ISP for, for customers in the worst mm-hmm. locations. Right. You know, it's not like we put one of these things in the middle of a city where people can go, you know, there's one in the middle of Yellowstone. <laughs> there's there's one on the northern slope of Alaska up in Kanger where there's only one satellite provider that can hit it and it's a two meter dish. And when it snows, we don't have connectivity for six weeks, you know. So um, because we have these locations and there's connectivity available, um, there's talk of sort of um, using it as an assignable asset for other programs that want to do science at these locations. So either us just providing pure transit or providing some sort of interface back into our system for collection and distribution just depends. Hasn't really been sorted out yet. We have sort of our first uh, co-located experiment, you know, coming online or being worked out right now, but hasn't, nothing's been formalized. Okay. And so from, from the sensors side of things, what's, what types of connectivity, you know, because I think really when we get into and we're looking from a security perspective, when we look at, you know, all these devices, one thing I've been used, you know, to in, in my past work is when I'm working on, um, I worked in a lot of maritime. So we had a lot of, uh, let's say, buoys that were actually you know, pulling back uh, sea did, yeah. data. Um, we had a lot of, you know, shipping containers that would tell you the temperature and the moisture in the container so that, you know, if food was going off or cold or whatever. Um uh, so we can, from a shipping perspective as well, and also from a mining perspective is mostly for, you know, uh, uh, coordinates and data about uh, maintenance and performance of the of the the, uh, the machines and the trucks themselves. So we've seen a lot of different kind of data coming back. Um, and for me, you know, one thing is, is it's all about uh, when you talk about, you know, different sensors and edge devices and, and uh, different kind of areas where they're, you know, basically just picking up one piece of data and then communicating it. Um, can, how, how, what's the medium that you're using or seeing? Is, is it over things like Bluetooth? Is it over Wi-Fi? Is it using, uh, you know, let's say mobile carriers like 4G or 5G? Uh, what type of communicate? What, what type of standards are you keeping to? And what, you know, what are you seeing um, that's being used? So for the most part, the design that was built for Neon predates me. But uh, there was a desire for providing power 
mm-hmm. to a lot of these types of sensors, like that PRT needs voltage. Uh, and so the data loggers themselves are all built to run off PoE. Mm-hmm. So the whole entire site is basically PoE powered. And then the data loggers do DC to DC conversion for different voltages, so 24 volt, 5 volt, 3.3 volt, depending on what type of things are attached. Uh, and that's most of the instrumentation. There are some things, like you mentioned, buoys. Um, mm-hmm. We get a buoy, I forget the name of the manufacturer, but they have their own design that has like pluggable modules for doing mm-hmm. different water quality measurements and things. And that has a wireless radio mm-hmm. that comes back to one of the data loggers we have on the shore. I believe that is LoRa or something similar to that. It's not Bluetooth, but it's some industrial protocol that you know they use as a serial, like basically a long serial port to pull the data back. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty long cable. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's not no cable, right? So, right, right, right. Um, Radio, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the problems they have with that that instrumentation tend to be you know high flow events and things that mm-hmm. tend to be more frequent now than they used to be. So um, stuff washes away, or they they need to do something to to moor it, and then. You know, these things tend to be in like national parks and places where you can't just like dig yeah. and put a big concrete buoy somewhere. So you have to get agreement about what can be done. Mm-hmm. And what about, so, so you know, all of this data is being generated um, and it's, it, the frequency is it's quite impressive because, you know, the, fre- uh, the frequency of the communications I was working in was much less frequent <laughs> um, because of power consumption. You know, it, it, the more frequent you, you, you communicate, the yeah. more power you use. And these are very power-sensitive devices because they're meant to be very low power, um, it was its uh, consumption. And I think that, that's one of the things I'm, I'm saying, the advantages of at least 5G coming is 5G definitely has power advantages. <laughs> Doesn't help me though. So, I mean, five G five G is not where these things are, you know. <laughs> true. Right, right, true. Right. So, so what what type of what type of security things that you know put in place? Uh, is there any security at all for those devices? Um, and when we're talking about you know a lot of these, if you're talking about you know serial cables, <laughs> um, or uh, we're talking about Bluetooth or, or, or wireless. Um, a lot of those we tend, I, I tend to find in, in the environments I've worked in, is that they tend to have no security or no encryption because just the the, the loss and bandwidth is significant uh, when you put in place. And then what happens is it means you need a much more powerful device in the end to be able to manage that. And it, again, that means more power consumption. Um, so, what types of you know uh, security um, is put in place in those devices as as you know that uh, you're using? It's it's basically what you're saying in terms of, uh, you know, folks weren't thinking about security when this stuff was engineered Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where, like, you know, a lot of the instrumentation is just sitting out there. You can plug into it. You know, it's not even in a box. Um, They they were very concerned about environmentals for this stuff to make sure that Mm -hmm. it could work up in negative 40 in Alaska and in Arizona and that sort of place. So magnesium or aluminum casings and very high temperature ratings and that sort of stuff. I think part of it just comes from the maturity of understanding what people mean by security. Mm-hmm. So if you went to someone at my program, you know, five years ago and you said, what are you doing for security? They'd say, what do you mean? You know, no, who cares if people steal the data? It's public data. <laughs> Our job is to distribute this data to everybody. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes and gets it, I mean, what's the big deal, right? But if you think about it, like in terms of the CIA triad, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have a high confidentiality requirement, you know, uh, the data that we, we retrieve, it's going to be publicly available anyway. There's some mm-hmm. you know, quality measurement and, and aggregations that are done for time periods and that sort of stuff. But And they, some of them have some more complicated calculations that have to be done for derived, mm-hmm. derived data. But there's not really much of a confidentiality requirement. But when you look at integrity and availability, mm-hmm. 
those are those are pretty important. And I think availability has been fairly well uh, handled in the design. Mm -hmm. You know, the we don't care so much if the data is late. But we do care that we have to be able to process it if it comes late, which sort of presents us with a different design and different concerns than a typical like IoT type thing. You know, my thermostat in my house reports back the temperature in my house to Ecobee. But if it doesn't do it for three days and the fourth day it updates, Ecobee doesn't care about the last three days. Not really. Right. right. So time we is important. Time, right. Time. So we care about keeping all that data. So there's sort of buffering at every level of the design, you know, data loggers buffer in case they get disconnected mm -hmm. from this computer we have running each site. Those things are designed to buffer for at least 30 days. And then that, that sends data back. So, um, all the availability pieces are done pretty well. Integrity though, I think is something that's just not really adequately thought about. And yeah. it's a difficult problem for sensor networks like this because, I think fundamentally it all boils back to provisioning issues. Mm -hmm. You know, you can handle the cryptography overhead and that sort of stuff. It's not really that bad, um, especially when you start talking about using something like protocol buffers or Avro mm -hmm. or some means of bulking and batching and compressing data for like something like Kafka or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's ways to get the bandwidth down. But if you're going to do any sort of keying or signature outside of just like a CRC or, you know, uh, hash, you have to have some way of providing a route of trust at manufacturing mm -hmm. that you can leverage for bootstrapping. And that's not really a solved problem anywhere. I mean, right. ignore ignore the, the sensor space, for instance. It, it, it's very similar to the messaging space, right? right. Just you know, think about you're sending messages to other people and Apple, you know, they seed their phones with a route of trust and there's a way they can derive keying from it and they use that for iMessage. But if you're another messaging provider on top of that, that doesn't work. So you need to either leverage those mechanisms to store secrets or and end up driving trust back to a phone number or, or something for bootstrapping. And, and for us, we would have to inject some sort of key material or public key or mm -hmm. um, enrollment key or, you know, however you want to look at it in order to sort of chain that whole process off. And it's sort of a complicated question about how best to do that. Yeah. And I think uh, so, it so, also comes into like, like what's so right? So data integrity is the important mm -hmm. part, right? Like, and then it's also a question of well, what's the risk or what's the if you? I imagine at the individual sensor level, an attack against a specific one sensor mm -hmm. isn't going to mess up. I mean, you guys are collecting so much data. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, um, but the like, what would be the the sort of scale of the attack or what would be the... I think you have to sort of think it through from that perspective. Like, what would be the point? How much would they actually have to compromise in order to have any significant impact? Um, I imagine most of the algorithms that are being used on the data that's coming back from these sensors, sensors are imperfect. Um, so oh, you're sure. probably yeah. right. So you probably already have things built in to throw out. Like this is an outlier. Like so, how many would you actually have to compromise? How much data would you actually have to compromise in order to so, compromise the system? I think it, you, I think you're hinting at it here. Right? It comes back to threat right. modeling. Like what's the right. actual threat? And I think for us as a program, ransomware is a far higher threat than <laughs> someone modifying sensor data. You know, coming right. back into the observatory. It's just the, the, the motivation is just not there. Um, I mean, if I'm Exxon Mobil and I don't want people to believe in climate change, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be difficult. I mean, it, it would be difficult for you to figure out exactly what you would need to modify 
because we don't right. do forecasting on that data. It's not really well-defined as a science yet. So we're just collecting information. So you would have to have the foresight to know what models would be built off of this data to then know what you would want to modify to get that desired outcome. Oh, I would just replay the data from 10 years ago so it looks like everything's steady it, state. You, no, no, I know. I, no, I know. <laughs> yeah. So going back to, to Mark's right, point sorry. as well is, is, is you know, um, data poisoning. So it's from an integrity perspective, that's one of the biggest risks is, you know, is that, uh, and, and Mike's kind of going to, is that how, how much data poisoning do you need to do for the rest of the data become invalidated? Mm-hmm. Um, or that the accuracy of that data, you know, becomes seriously impacted. You know, you're looking at, is it, if you only need, it's, it's like going into, um, uh, you've got, you know, let's say threat feeds. You know, we all, you know, in security, we use a lot of our, you know, risks based on the threat feeds coming in. And how much of that threat feed do you need to poison in order for you to get too much false positives um, that creates distrust in the result itself? Uh, so we we've, we've, we discussed the same. This, I mean, we, uh, Mike, we discussed the same around the election side of things. How much distrust do you do you need to put in the system in order for people to lose, uh, you know, the the trust in the system itself? Right. So I think that to some extent, when you talk about information security, you know, a, a well secured system is also a well running system in right. many regards, mm-hmm. and you can use cryptography to um, improve you know, remove errors from your system. You know, if there's no authentication required at all for a sensor to communicate, how do you know that it's even in the right place? You know, that it's the right type of sensor? And the same. (laughs) Right, yeah, same thing. Like, you know, so not having any mechanism to do that leads to errors. And those errors lead to decreased availability, right? So Mm -hmm. um, there's still a need for those sorts of mechanisms just to ensure the quality of what's being collected. Uh, the question is, where's the line, right? Where is it appropriate? Right. And in my case, you know, this is a program funded by the NSF. I have to justify every piece of the budget, mm-hmm. you know, and there's tons, there's always tons of work to be done. So is there, is there money available to go build these new mechanisms, you know, or right, do we right. want to concentrate this other problem that we've got that's pressing? Yeah. Um, it gets, you know, it's, it's just triage, right? <laughs> right. I mean, so that's what, that's what yeah. security is, right? It's always that threat modeling. It's always that trade-off, right? If I had unlimited resources and unlimited money and unlimited time, obviously I would secure things well beyond whatever, but I have to look at what's the data that I have? What's the risk if this data were... Probability and likely... Right, exactly. Whether it's corrupted data or public, you know, in your case, you have the advantage of it's all publicly accessible data anyway. So that makes... It's one side of the equation a little bit easier. So so your two point, it's the two things, the two biggest risks is availability. Is that a ransomware threat? Is a a true risk of not making that data available? Even if it's publicly available, if, it, if the service is not there, then that's a risk. And then integrity, you know, creates distrust in the, in, in the accuracy of the information. Um, so since it's already gone public, you know, then it's about encryption, you know, confidentiality, as you said, doesn't make sense. Now, I get into one of the things, I'm, when I'm always looking at these edge you know, devices and sensors and they're communicating in, and it reminds me of one that I worked on, this, <laughs> I'm getting old these days, is now six years ago, uh, so it's getting longer. And it was when I first interacted, I was doing a penetration test quite a, a number of years ago, and, and it was in um, a ship management company. And ultimately what happened was they had light bulbs that were actually deployed. And simply those light bulbs you know, were connected to the internet um, and connected to a Wi-Fi access point, but they were directly connected. They were not segmented. They were not having any dedicated you know, gateway or correlation point. So it meant that as long as they can access any access point, 
Therefore, basically, you could intercept the communication. You can, you know, you could uh, ultimately what we were able to do was also make a, a Raspberry Pi pretend to be a light bulb uh, because we we're able to actually simulate the communication. So, you know, from a let's say a, a, a skill side of things, do you look at correlators and gateways for these devices, or how how do they ultimately you know, how does the day get correlated together? Uh, because for me, I think in these areas, the biggest risks is not the device itself. It's the aggregation point of where they actually come together. And I think that's where really, you know, if, if to look at security measures, um, that's what really needs to emphasize. Because even the light bulb itself, the vendor, when we notify the vendor of the risks and the vulnerabilities, they end up coming and creating what was called as a, uh, a smart hub. And these then devices were not connected directly to the Wi-Fi access points. They connected to the smart hub and it was a smart hub that was connected to it. And they had provided the protocols and, and additional controls because then those aggregators and correlators became more powerful. They had more power, more energy, and more connectivity. So what do you see as, as the risk in, in, in those areas? Do you, do you have similarities? Well, I can talk about what we do. Um, and, and part of this is just because we had to design this system to survive communications failures for long periods of time. But we actually have a dedicated computer at each site that is basically a full-on Linux box that we can... <laughs> do this with, and it coordinates all the collection activities and buffering, and then everything that gets sent from the site gets sent from that system back in. Mm -hmm. Similar to what you're talking about with the gateway, just a much higher power version of that. Yeah. Um, and we're currently working on a next generation design for that that is tremendously more secure than what we we're doing previously, mm -hmm. has much better software update mechanisms and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You don't have um, to drive out to the site to, to update it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have to do that today. No, but, I know. It's just you know, when you start talking a fleet of machines and, right. uh, and body connectivity, so you can't do something like run an Ansible playbook and have it hit every box you know, right. in an expected way. Um, you know, you have to, you have to, yeah, and then introducing things like maintenance windows where you can actually do an mm -hmm. update. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the challenge that I see is really on the communications protocols that are mm. used for these sorts of devices. And if you look at CoAP or MQTT, you know, the, the messaging format is fine, but ultimately, if you want to authenticate a device when it comes to one of these systems, the choices are not particularly great. You know, built in, there's usually username and password. And if you're lucky, those passwords get hashed on the back end. <laughs> um, in a good way. I mean, but, most of them hash. But, but, the but the password's password anyway, so what is yeah. it? There's no scalable way to do username and passwords for millions of devices. Right, right, obviously. Point. That's just not, that's not useful. Um, and then they usually have some sort of support for an MTLS, right? Mm -hmm. Which you can build a scalable MTLS implementation, but it's a ton of work. And if you don't do things like handle revocation through some robust, robust infrastructure, then you're in sort of the same boat you were before. You can't, you know, move things around mm -hmm. and they expire and renewal right. has to be handled and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then if you look at, you know, newer systems, assuming, and, and this would probably work assuming that you have an online system, they're all using sort of a bear token type setup where they go to like an OIDC type service and then there's a bear token, but you still have this provisioning process that you have to get through where how does the device get the bear token and renew the bear token? Right. You know, the... the the uh, the authentication problem for devices that you ship out and don't touch and then come back in is a tough one. You know, um, back you know a long time ago, I used to work doing some government security stuff, and and the way that they would think about things, you know, for voice uh, mm -hmm. would have a lower standard than something that was automated. 
Because with voice, you know, I've known Mike a long time. I'd recognize Mike's voice. So if he's confirming to me mm-hmm. the authentication is working, I know it's not being intercepted and, and changed because I can hear Mike's voice and I know what he sounds like. Yeah. But machine-to-machine communication don't have any of that. Um, right. And so there's a higher standard to peer trust. Yeah, to, it's a little yeah, bit exactly. peer trust is, is, is having, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, getting into a lot of, uh, discussions because because one of the main areas I work in is identity and access management and privilege access. That's one of my main fields, and one of the things is that it's about you know as you mentioned even when you talk about the Apple side is it's about how you verify the root of trust right. and how do you bring people into that trust. You know how do you provision new machines because provisioning is always for for many companies that's the, probably the biggest challenge when you're bringing new devices in. Um, you know, does this device know that other device? Is it in, are they introducing you, you know, to something they're already familiar with? Um, you know, has it got similarities? And I think it reminds me always when I go back to even one of the old Windows licensing mechanisms where, you know, that's what sometimes we always go back to is that old licensing mechanism where basically the license is built off five hardware components that was on the device. And if any of if three out of those five components changed, then the license was invalidated. And that ultimately kind of gets into that same, you know, the fingerprinting side, you take it off the serial number of the hard disk, how much memory is installed, the CPU, um, and you basically, you know, combine those all together, you get an ultimate hash. And then if that hash becomes too distant from uh, the original source, the three components get changed, then the license becomes invalidated. And ultimately the same thing, yep. So it's ultimately the same kind of mechanism we need to make sure that one is we have self-provisioning capabilities and also having that ability to, to, you know, have trust parameters that allows these devices to self-provision and self-gain uh, access as long as they meet these, you know, kind of set c- controls uh, that kind of verifies where they're from. And it could be the same, you know, you know from a, a mechanism. I remember even, what was it, uh, uh, TPMs was the same problem. You know, they had to come into central locations. You had to put the keys on it. And then, you know, in these depots, uh, before it goes to its end destination, because provisioning was always the biggest problem. Right. And I think you know that's probably if if you're looking if you do solve an authentication identity you know challenge, then the biggest problem you end up coming down is is provisioning enabling and and do you have these depot system that has to go to before it goes out to the site? I mean, the way Microsoft and other people get around this sort of thing is with an activation key that can only be used you know, a certain yeah. number of times or one, you know, some sort of business logic rule attached to the activation right. that is then derived. Right. And maybe some sort of internal hash for the value so that you can detect typos easily or something, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think that works fine from a consumer facing application, but not so well for some more industrial type applications. It just gets difficult. Yeah. And then manufacturing wise, you know, we have a we have a manufacturing floor where I'm at where they do cable harnesses mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. But how am I going to get them to do you know controlled key load <laughs> in a way that doesn't leak it accidentally? And you know they they can barely get you know some EPROMs programmed for IDs mm-hmm. off of some barcodes. Like that the the doing that sort of thing securely would be a huge training barrier. Right, um, and back to the other point, probably not worth the. Co- I mean, the cost yeah, just, yeah, just, just, just isn't worth the yeah, squeeze. Um, and it's funny you're talking about your system, um, and you know we we've talked about um, OT and other contexts, mm-hmm. right? OC, OT security, and I, I think one of the common threads is how much is over these serial protocols and the lack of security there, and <laughs> basically what you have is not that dissimilar from a giant car. 
Um, but unfortunately, your wheels and your steering wheel and your sunroof and everything are just we don't have any miles on you know in this sort of application. Right? Well, that's true. You don't have the can bus, but you know. Yeah. What I, but in terms of the that sort of serial, that that's again at the heart of it is that's mm-hmm. and I think we, when we talked to um, you know when we talked about that, it was well, what can we put on top? Because we're not going to change those protocols. We're not going to change. No, it's what can we design. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to change TCP and Ethernet. They're right. Those are not going to change. Yeah, but the, the industrial equipment manufacturers try to do that all the time. There's EtherCAT, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not just uh, it's not just us talking about that. And you know, when you start talking about a car or factory equipment, there's a life safety aspect to, to it that I don't have yes. to worry about. And right. I've got. But once you start talking life safety, now it's you know the 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 folks that design these industrial protocols, you know, they weren't dumb. They were thinking about that sort of stuff. But right, what right. they were thinking about was, well, the robot arm needs an update every 20 milliseconds. And if it doesn't get one, it'll fail into life safety mode and move the robot away and stop moving. Mm-hmm. Right. But they weren't thinking about somebody manipulating that. They were just thinking about if the equipment fails, what do I do? Yeah. And we had, I had a big conversation when I worked in a project a number of years ago, which was an autonomous shipping project as well. And this was a similar scenario. It all became... It was about, you know, there was, a, there was not so much about um, life and safety at the time, and it wasn't about, you know, encryption and confidentiality. It was all about availability. And when you put ships into the middle of the ocean, it was about how well those, you know, components perform without human intervention. How long can they go? Right. And it was a big discussion we had over things like LNG. Most ships today are, 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 are was it, you know, uh, running gas and therefore basically lighter fuel Therefore, they get longer distances without, you know, um, uh, from a weight uh, pr- perspective. But with an LNG engine, they're heavily kind of human needs to maintain them. They're more need, more maintenance. So, you know, people, they can actually have in the vessels to maintain those versus things like diesel engines where it's more heavy fuel. And therefore, but diesel engines will run for hours and days without human intervention. Right. So it's always that balance about trade-offs. And again, into there was a big discussion when we were looking at autonomous shipping side, and um, you know we had similar issues around connectivity and bandwidth. You know, when you have a storm or a satellite goes out of uh, out of uh, a direction, these were heavily dependent on things like GPS coordinates, DPS, um, and VSAT links, and you know you've got of course multiple systems to make sure you have high availability of communication lines. But ultimately, what they end up getting into as well, and end up there was a patent uh, eventually done, which was using a relay system was, uh, you know, to make sure that, you know, if you lose connection back to your main, uh, let's say, path, that you could relay it through other paths, other vessels in the ocean. So, you know, rather the, if you lose connection with the uh, satellite, what you could do is relay it through another ship that has the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, is there, is there innovations that you're doing or that looks at these higher connectivity advantages? Um, and especially those you know, places that have you know, poor communication. As you said, you know, if, if it was in Alaska or in the ocean, uh, where bandwidth is, is at, a, <laughs> at a premium, um, kind of, where do you see the kind of improvements of availability? Well, we don't do anything like that uh, for any sort of mesh topology mm-hmm. or anything like yeah. that. Um, and not that it's certain that we couldn't do, but... There's not really much of an advantage for the way that our sites get deployed in doing that. There's not any sort of anything nearby in some of these places mm-hmm. at all. Um, and if there is something nearby, we're looking at leveraging it for connectivity more than anything else, uh, just mm-hmm. to get the cost down. You know, that satellite provider in Alaska, there's actually not a bandwidth problem when it's online. It's There's plenty of bandwidth. It's just very expensive. 
because they're the only provider that can hit that, (laughs) you know, monopoly. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, So, I mean, and, and that's, that's your only choice. You can't go to Viasat or something and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. get a cheaper connection. We do that other places. And, um, I was talking to our networking guys. It's really only about 10 sites we have that have those sort of really tight constraints. Mm -hmm. And, and some of them are really difficult because there's a, there's an absolute cap. Like we can't send more than a certain amount of data a month period. There is no, Mm option for buying more bandwidth. It's just not available. Right. Um, and then there's another set that are all cellular that, you know, they're a little more expensive, but there's not really a cap. Uh, and then we have, we have hardline fiber to a lot of sites because we end up having to run hardline power. You know, you have to <laughs> run power for 20 miles to get somewhere and might as well run fiber while you're doing it. So it really just depends on the site. Mm-hmm. But, uh, those mesh topologies are always interesting to me because they're always talked about in the context of providing greater availability. Yeah. But as I'm sure you know, the more complexity you add, the more risk you have to availability. You know, you want to make a high availability web service. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably going to take a lot of testing. Your deployments are going to take longer. You know, there's going to be more complexity in that solution than it would be if it's just a simple setup. And right. you really have I mean, to ask, well, how much does downtime cost me? Yeah, is right. it I mean, worth it? Becomes... You know, it comes down to economics, just like everything else, right? Yeah. How much does it cost yeah. me? Is it worth the extra complexity to enable it? You know, what would my cost be if this didn't work? And mm-hmm. is it worth the extra? I think in the case of that ship solution you're talking about, it was worth it. You know, yeah, it is worth it. Yeah, because <laughs> if you lose if you lose connection to ship and and um, you know, it takes two miles for them to stop <laughs> or turn. <Yeah. laughs> um, it's not a lot of time you want to wait for that connection to reestablish Absolutely. again. So, yeah. um, so those things, you know, as well, well as probably a radio connection and a VSAT connection and, a, you know, Correct. and there's probably right. failure modes that go to lower bandwidth when you hit Iridium. We're looking at using Iridium next, actually, for one of our sites. Okay, okay. So that's a lot of a lot of the the providers are using K band and L band uh, right. types of connections and um, got a lot into it. Alaska. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so it's it's an interesting, you know, because even how much speed you would be, you know, the speed that you get through those is so slow. And I think that you know we even look back at you know I think uh, probably you know sometimes slow connections is good. <laughs> that's is if we look back at you know uh, even at uh, ransomware cases with uh, NotPetya, uh, Maersk were probably really really happy that their server in Africa had a really slow connection because yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't possible to get infected <laughs> on time because of that poor bandwidth, um, and ultimately end up saving them being able to use that uh, domain control to restore the rest of the environment. So they they were quite lucky and fortunate. So so sometimes you know low, low bandwidth connection can save you in the end because they become very difficult to uh, impact as well from a from a tech perspective. Right. Yeah, that's a, I mean, another challenge we have on the bandwidth side is just our data hosting and distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, um, the instrumentation stuff that we're talking about here, it doesn't actually take up that much space. You know, uh, I, when I talk to folks that are trying to understand it, they ask, you know, well, how, how, how much sensor data do we get a day? And I give them that number, you know, 5 billion readings a day. And they're like, yeah, but how, how many megabytes? You know, how many megabytes is that? I'm like, well, no one asks Visa how many megabytes the transactions they conduct a day take up. Like, that's not the figure that is crazy. It's the individual measurements that have to be processed and handled. Mm-hmm. It's not the size, right? You know, on, on our remote sensing platform, we fly this plane it's got a hyperspectral imager, a camera, mm-hmm. high resolution and LiDAR return. We fly each site once a year and, and produce a bunch of 
data. Like they look at like foliage coverage and the hyperspectral imaging and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but an individual image from that camera is a hundred megapixel camera. So one image is like 28 megabytes or something, mm-hmm. you know, compressed. It's one, it's one piece of data in, right. in the other context. Right. So, you know, that, in that one, the size is relevant, but, um, yeah. The problem I have is I have people that want to come in and download four years of that remote sensing data. Right. You know, next week, and they won't tell me, they just want to get it. And it makes it very difficult, you know, pricing, you know, cloud hosting or, or bandwidth uh, and that sort of stuff just to try to accommodate the, the use case for the data. And we expect that use case to increase over time. Yeah. Did you, do you also have to compete with bandwidth from other services as well? Because um, one thing that I find uh, quite often, uh, you know, working in, it was oil rigs whenever, you know, a helicopter was landing because of the safety aspect. Any other communication we were doing, sensor readings, we had to switch it off um, for that helicopter until that helicopter landed. Um, I also had major problems in vessels where all of a sudden we were doing some engine diagnostics, you know, over the VSAT link and we're looking at this data and then all of a sudden, boom, everything disappears and connectivity is lost. We're going, what was happening? And we end up finding out that it was the captain decided to make a Skype call (laughs) to the family and used up all the bandwidth. Um, Do you you end up competing for bandwidth? Um, Do you have dedicated or shared? The problem we have tends to occur at sites where there's no cell coverage. Mm-hmm. And we have field technicians that go out there to do work. And uh, those hyperspectral, not so the, um, not the hyperspectral stuff, the, uh, the ring down cavity spectrometers that I was mm-hmm. talking about, they're, you know, like a lot of other industrial equipment, they have a, a, like a Windows 7 computer <laughs> attached to them <laughs> that manages the, the system. And it's online, and it has to be online because the manufacturer supports it through TeamViewer. Oh, okay. That's great, right? So <laughs> people were like going on Facebook on these systems because it was the only computer out there, you know, that was hooked up. And so they'd get on Facebook or, you know, watch a video on Facebook or something, and then the whole site goes offline. <laughs> Somebody, <laughs> that's that's the experience I've, I've seen. I've, I've yeah, seen that's similar, that's the sort of similar stuff artists. that we run yeah. into is, yeah, you know, someone does something and there's very limited bandwidth and... You know, they go, oh, look, this works. <laughs> yeah. So so I think there's there's the benefits and the negatives. It's, it's right. when, you know, most of the negatives is, is likely it's, it's our own, you know, self, self-infliction <laughs> that we end up causing the so problems. What ourselves. we've done is we put a, a, a wireless access point at the environmental hut mm-hmm. that they can get on and it's prevented from eating all the bandwidth if they want to do something and they have a laptop so they can hook it up. So, okay. you know, if you try to fight that to keep people out, I found that, People will find a way in. It's just right. That's yeah. that, that's like another. I think that's another theme that we found when talking to anybody in security. Is right. It's like the well, you have to come up like right. People will find a way around your draconian policies. Oh, yeah. So it's better okay. just to figure out a way to make it so they can do what they want to do in a secure way that doesn't impact and doesn't do this. You're just better off than trying to fight it because otherwise you can. You're just going to be standing on the sideline, yes. yelling and screaming. What are you doing? And, and the game just God continues. You might find it worse. It's you like, might it's find like an architect complaining. Yeah. You know, it's like an architect <laughs> complaining that the, the, the office would be beautiful. People just didn't come in and mess up their desks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the same problem. It's, you know, they just have these damn users on the system. You know, everything right. would be secure. <laughs> they wouldn't click on all these email links. It's like, well, exactly. no. 
<laughs> but that's their job. That's all so the that's all that's that all their job is. So, and, and I think that also gets probably back to one of your bigger challenges, the 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 ransomware attack, right? Like so mm-hmm. now this guy these people are using these Windows 7 machines that are out there for a very specific purpose. Mm-hmm. And that purpose isn't social media. Oh, so 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 and, <laughs> and they have to be on the internet because right. that's how and the manufacturer have... supports it. Okay. Right. And I can upgrade them to Windows 10 for ten thousand dollars a piece. Wow. <laughs> and we have a hundred and some of them. And you're still right. and you'd be still vulnerable, but not as <laughs> right. You just <laughs> be vulnerable. Right. <laughs> well, so we have another system that is also Windows 7 hmm. that is completely unpatched. Like it's Windows 7 from like the first release of Windows 7. And it's needed for scientific process. And it's not an uncommon problem to have. Right. It's just not on the network. <laughs> right. Well, that, you know, that's, 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 yeah. Don't put it on the network. You know, it's you have to put mitigations in place. You know, I, I know someone. Uh, we have someone on my team that used to work for Gates Manufacturing, and all of their manufacturing line equipment was like Windows NT mm-hmm. for, right. until very recently, right? And they have to keep that running because it's you know billions of dollars of revenue attached to that stuff. But you have to mitigate the risk of running it. You can't just like plug it in and go, oh, oh nothing happens. You know? Well, right. And that's and right, that's that's one of the other challenges, right? Is as these systems that were never designed to be online are put into context mm-hmm. where maybe they can be, or even I mean, even an air gap network, there's still problems with that. There's still Human. the potential for even oh. if it's not on the system, there's still the potential. The first problem getting... is most people don't know what that actually means. Right. Mm-hmm. They say air gapped and they go, Oh, it was a firewall. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's what people think. They go, oh, yeah, right, right. it's just fired off the internet. You know, it, it's air-gapped. Right. No. That's not what air-gapped means. Yeah. It's not even, it's, even it's one... Or, yeah. you know, outside, you know, government spaces, it's a little mm-hmm. different, right? DOD-type stuff. But commercially, you know, what's the temptation to go, oh, well, I just need to download some stuff to this thing real quick, you know? Right. right. If, it, if, it's, if, it's, if it's got a keyboard, it's yeah. got inter, interface ports... And it's connected to a network. It's not very good. <laughs> right, right. If I forgot, if I have, if I have physical, my my definition is if I have, if someone has physical access to it, it's already yeah. If you, if you have you, a USB you, port, yeah, exactly. if it has a USB port. And right. I, I mean, I've seen this a lot in the maritime. You know, my, my experience in maritime industry is you've got active systems running and and, and bridges of ships, and people plug their phones in to charge their phones into navigational equipment. Yep. Yep. And yep. and ends up infecting them systems. Uh, right. Unless you epoxy um, all the ports shut. On the plus side, Steve, Windows NT doesn't support USB devices. You have to have like a PS2 keyboard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, actually, that was one of my points. The, the older the operating system you go back, the less problem it is to actually uh, impact today because, you know, there's not many people who know hey. around. And there wasn't many exploits at the time as right, well. Right. They were actually well, quite challenging. That's why you run VSD, right? I, the IP yeah. tables command doesn't work. And... <laughs> so, uh, so I've run everything off of Apple IIe's here. Uh, that's... <laughs> well, all of your son, all your son pizza boxes, Mike. You know, yes. No one will know how to get to U, slash user U, UCB. I still have a bunch of uh, yeah, OS2 run anything, running. So, you know, you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, is uh, I did work at the National Library of Medicine for a while, and it was, it was interesting talking about. I mean, not from a security perspective, but the notion of like these digital archi- you know, these digital archives, and how do you, what does it mean, and like to preserve something, and the fact that you had to preserve, like if you had a digital file, like mm-hmm. do you constantly upgrade it to the latest standard um, in order so that you can read it, or do you keep these old computers around that are still able to to read those older things, and sort of mm-hmm. that same thing, like if you go. It, 
there are things in the world that are so hard to talk to these days that even though they're completely insecure, it's just so hard. It's it's security through obscurity, essentially, mm-hmm. because it's just not... Big, hey, there's not problem. many of them and it's not worth the effort. You know, the lowest common denominator format for us right now is CSV for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. I think that's universal. I mean, I think there's sure. a reason why every job I've ever worked at, I've written. This is the first time I've ever had a job where I haven't written at least one CSV parser. Um, usually, it's a two lot or of three. <laughs> not being CSV um, for a lot of these sorts of data sets, you know, columnar formats have a lot of benefits, right? Uh, and we use them internally pretty heavily. But in terms of what we publish, we don't currently expose that stuff, and we got a lot of debate going on internally about whether it makes sense to. Um, sort of dynamically convert from the columnar format to, you know, various formats people might request or what. And then even in the, in the proprietary, you know, accepted formats like that, um, the air, remote sensing stuff, like the hyperspectral imagery and that sort of stuff, that changes too. You know, we're using geotiffs for most of that imagery, but now everyone's moving towards cloud-optimized geotiffs. <laughs> you know, so the, do we want to, you know, make that shift or not? And, it's constantly upgrading the, you know, the data format. I think at some point you have to sign up for that. Right. Um, but then what does it mean for the old? Do you keep the old one around too? Is there, is there money to keep an extra couple petabytes around? Yeah. Right, <laughs> it's right, right. not exactly free. Right. Just, 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 convert, <laughs> just convert on the fly, man. Just convert on the fly. Yeah. <laughs> well, so they, actually, that particular one is pretty interesting. So the only difference between GeoTIFF and cloud-optimized GeoTIFF, they're the exact same format. So they're, they're both GeoTIFF, mm-hmm. but cloud-optimized GeoTIFF is restructured to allow range requests. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can actually view parts of the image over HTTP as opposed to having to get the whole file. Having right. to get the whole file and look at it. Yeah, and then, Which and also then... makes it bigger. Oh, interesting. Because the compression's not as good. Right, yeah, you can't do the, as much compression, right. Which again comes down to the bandwidth issue. <laughs> well, actually, in this case, it's, it's data storage, right? Right, storage, right. Well, storage is cheap. I mean, we all know that. <laughs> it's, it's always it's always the case. Is the every question you get into that I've always done in infrastructure design architecture, it comes down to storage and speed, right. <laughs> and, and you always have to decide which one you know. Do you want? And I think that's actually one of the things I've seen in here in Estonia. That was you know one of the reasons why they're moving to five G much faster is that they don't need to move the data as much. The data can stay on the edge devices. And what they're now doing is they're using that higher Plus bandwidth. Yeah, so to ask the questions that they want. Rather than saying, let's bring everything centrally, let's leave the data out there and we'll ask it when we need it. What's, um, that, what's that project? It was, not, it was a former Facebook project that got spun out open source that provides like a SQL query engine across your cluster of machines. And you can get dynamic responses back. I can't remember the name of it, but that, similar yeah. to that, right? You, you run the query and the query gets distributed across the whole environment and then you can get your average CPU consumption, you know, off the whole Correct. thing. You don't have to store it. It just pulls it back from the machine itself. Correct. Um, that sort of approach. And, and, and it's told to me what, what I find as well is that, you know, I've done a lot of things like immersive uh, VR types of things as well where that became an advantage where um, now what you're doing is that you've got these Flash machines... Query. Yeah, you've, well, you've got a device which is actually sending it uh, 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 faster and quicker to the central storage um, over 5G, and therefore you have less battery consumption. So I don't need to walk around with a computer. Oh, yeah. um, I can actually just have a very lightweight sensor that will actually send it very quickly across. It becomes it's going back to the old mainframe scenario. The dumb wow. terminal that basically just 
you're only doing is putting characters in and it's getting processed centrally. So there's a lot of benefits. We are doing that pendulum swing again, back and forward, because of improved connectivity and you know being able to query, um, you know, as you mentioned about the algorithms um, that you can query out to those devices and not need to bring all the data centrally as well. Right. Yeah, that's what we're looking at with this next-gen design for mm-hmm. data loggers. We're looking at is you know these new SOCs that much they're much faster, and so the amount of time you spend doing processing is so much smaller that the, the power consumption, even though the theoretical power consumption can be mm-hmm. so much higher, your processing needs haven't increased, so you're actually using it so much less that the power consumption is is so reasonable. Um, and it gets into it also gets into benefits against it reduces your risk against things like ransomware and in denial of service attacks. Um, because what happens is, is that you're still keeping your data decentralized. Um, and what happens is, is that it becomes much more difficult to target from both an availability and an integrity uh, perspective, because then you have to target all of those sensors and all those devices. Um, mm. So to, you know, it's one of the practices that Estonia has done, and we have discussed, uh, Mike, several times about Estonia's method. What they do is they, they don't centralize all the data repositories. They keep them decentralized. And what they have is a message sharing algorithm that allows you to ask the questions that you know goes out in real time and gets the data from all the boxes as you need it. Um, so there's benefits of doing that because you know, there's also the, the side effects as well. But it does mean that you have to have good bandwidth connectivity. The, the challenges for us are things like those buoys, right? Um, mm. They require field calibration for the most part. So every two weeks, someone has to go out with like a little pool kit, you know, and make sure that the, the measurement for the, the science they're trying to conduct, they need a certain right. amount of accuracy. So they have to do that on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. that information gets logged back in to, to the pipeline that does the calibration and, and conversion, but it's always delayed, right? Cause if someone goes and does that calibration in the field, you know, right now, it'll be at least a few hours before there's somewhere mm-hmm. where they can actually enter in the data somewhere as a result. And the buoy doesn't have any interface for logging it directly into the buoy. Cause in the model you're talking about, that's what you'd do. You'd log it into the buoy. It would do its own calibration based on what was going on. And then you wouldn't actually have this downstream system that you'd have yeah. to worry about. And so now you've got, you know, 10, 20,000 of these systems all doing their own independent piece. And there's not one place to attack or, or manipulate. Correct. Correct. But then you have to maintain 20,000 systems consistently. Yes. And that's a different yeah. problem. That's the, then that becomes the identity and access piece becomes very critical, important. The access controls for all of those. So there's a project you might be interested in uh, called Waggle. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, Waggle is the dance bees do mm-hmm. to, to say where the honey is, you know, or to, the mm-hmm. flowers are to go get something. And so these folks had an interesting idea, which is an edge compute type approach. So mm-hmm. the, at least the original system they deployed, they have a camera attached to an embedded, you know, SBC type system, and they want to count bees. Mm-hmm. And so they use a machine vision uh, huh. application that counts bees that go by on video. And mm-hmm. it's probably not 100% accurate, right? but it's more accurate than not counting any bees. Right. Because <laughs> that's the other choice. Right, right. And so they, they are just, they're just sending back the bee count, not the video feed back across, you know, some crazy link and retaining it and everything else. And that's an, you know, it's an interesting way to approach it is to say, well, you know, the science we can do with that data is better than no science. Right. And, you know, we can improve the algorithms over time and get a better idea of what's going on. Yeah. yeah. That's similar to the, the contact tracing um, that Google and Apple have done. The same, same concept, you know, decentralized uh, edge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, contact tracing, where basically they're just, you know, creating unique identifiers, sharing them with the devices in proximity. And uh, s- simply, you know, 
uploading that to a central database for for you know um, you know tracking and alerting. So anything you do on the edge, I always find is you know it's better long term. Um, ultimately, the less data you have to centralize. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, the other thing I think Steve, you're talking to is also the the idea that like usually getting eighty percent accurate is that's relatively easy. It's that last 20% that's always really, really hard. And usually 80% accurate is actually really good. If you look at like sort of the math of like how much, how much harder it is to get more accurate and what does that better accuracy actually result in, it's so diminishing returns that, right, these types of systems, especially when you're talking about scientific systems that are um, massively distributed. So you have lots and lots of nodes. The, the so, accuracy... I'm- I'm going to use some military terminology here, but I'm going to talk about <laughs> my program, okay? I would divide data needs for my program into two classes. There's strategic needs, and then there are tactical needs. Right. So strategic needs are the goal of the program. You know, mm-hmm. it's a 30-year data repository of ecological information. Someone needs to be able to come in in year 30 and ask for a 30-year history of soil temps at one of our sites, mm-hmm. whatever it is they're trying to research. So it's a very sort of strategic resource. It's for long-term planning. It's needed over a long period of time. And an edge type approach like you've described, I don't see any way to make that work to meet that strategic need. However, there's another need internally, which is a tactical need. Oh, and by the way, that strategic need, if it takes me three to four weeks to provide data where there's a 30-year tail on the data, (laughs) no one's really concerned. You know, right. They want to make sure the data is of high quality, that it's got all the things applied that it needs to have. And if it takes longer to assure that, that's more important than the speed at which you can have that data, right? right. On the strategic side... You mean the I tactical need, side? Sorry the, ta- sorry, the tactical side, thank you. Yeah. On the tactical side, <laughs> I need to run the observatory, okay? If someone unplugs something, and that means that I'm getting zero measurements back from a sensor, and they're only at a site every two weeks or every month, I don't want to wait a month to fix it. I want to know immediately, as soon as that happens, that there's a problem and that they can go fix it. I want to shift those problems left, right? Just like we always talk about <laughs> for engineering, right? I want, to, I want it to happen as soon as the problem occurs. I have a very uh, latency-sensitive need to know there's a problem or there's a change in implementation. Um, if someone has calibration coefficients for one of these thermometers that starts showing it's you know 90C outside and that can't be possible... Mm-hmm. I don't want to publish data with an incorrect calibration. So on the on the on the strategic side, I want I don't want that. I want to make sure I can get it out. Mm-hmm. But on the tactical side, I want it as soon as possible so I can avoid publishing it the other way. Right. Mm-hmm. And really on these sort of latency sensitive needs, I think that's where the edge strategy really shines. Yes. Is I want the you know, I want to it gives me the ability to make decisions as far out mm-hmm. on the edge as I can so I can correct problems as fast as possible. It preserves that shift left mentality. And if I have the ability to query across the whole system as a consistent state, it gives me that big picture of what's going on. I can do status reporting and that sort of stuff. And that's really where that, that use case shines. Absolutely. And, and the comparison I make is when, when we were doing um, this vision for the future in regards to transportation, it's, what you're saying is literally the difference between a car and a yeah. chip. Yeah. It's, it's literally that difference. Is car is on land. It's very well connected. And you can have that, you know, that your strategic kind of data flow immediately, you know, on demand. You've got good connectivity. You've got good access to it. 
And that can actually so. can be a negative. Yeah, because now you have you also, spoofing that they're going to hit you and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. And then you've got that, you know, the maritime side, whereas you've got pro connectivity. So you want to keep it out there as long as possible, but you want to have the main, you know, maintainability, um, to get it when you need to. Um, so I think, you know, that comparison, you know, it means that you have to strategically decide for certain locations which one to do, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which one is the, 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 the more positive side uh, for each of those locations, depending on those, those aspects. Uh, for me, it's, it's a pretty, you know, I've, I see it from a different perspective, you know, from my experience in the past, looking at maritime shipping and um, looking into transportation, those side of things. So that's where I've been more familiar with. Um, and that we're in the agriculture side of things and, you know, the, the sensory for, you know, the scientific side, the only times I've ever been is looking at it from, you know, uh, where I've seen drone maintenance, you know, going and checking, you know, using drones to go out and check the things that are uh, right. as expected. That's where I've seen it being used. But um, it's very insightful that I've, I've learned a lot from you today and I really appreciate it. And, and I'm sure the audience have also been finding it interesting because a lot of cases, many many cases when we're talking about security, we're always talking about privacy and confidentiality. Right. Um, but I think this really highlights that not everything is about encryption. Not everything is about confidentiality. And that other types of programs and other types of technology does have an importance that availability and integrity, the, the, the accuracy and veracity of that data becomes really critical. Um, so it's really, I've, I've learned a lot today and a really pleasure you know, talking with you and actually getting introduced. So um, I think my takeaways here for the audience is, is really is that, you know, not everything needs to be a secret and encrypted. Um, and it really comes down to some um, areas of security is really about integrity and availability. Um, so it's important to, to make sure that you, depending on what service you're providing, that when you take the CIA triad, you really understand how it applies to, to your service. Um, so Mike, any thoughts, any key takeaways that you've gathered from today? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that same stuff, right? I mean, it's it's just always nice to see those same security trade-offs and balances mm-hmm. and and availability, all of that. It's it's always applicable. Like it's just different trade-offs, different things um, in these different environments. Um, I always enjoy talking to Steve. Uh, we've been uh, good friends for for a long, long time, and uh, so uh, <laughs> it's it's always fun to talk. Um, Steve, any you know any final thoughts or anything you want to to part with? I think it sums it up pretty well, and I think it's also interesting to note that in an environment where confidentiality is less important, the other aspects that, you know, it's like an area graph that has grown on the other ones that you would, you know, you don't get away from it. You, 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 you have to spend more time on those other areas, it seems. Absolutely. Awesome, man. Thanks, Steve. Great to, to get introduced to you. I'm pretty sure the audience have really you know, had a very enjoyable conversation from, from the discussion today. And, and I'm sure, like me, they've learned a lot. So it's great having you on the show. Uh, look forward to, to you know, seeing you on future shows and episodes uh, to discuss more details. Um, so again, this wraps up another 401 Access tonight. Um, it's been fantastic and enjoyable for me. And again, for the audience, don't forget, tune in every two weeks for uh, our latest episodes. Stay up to date. Send us your, you know, what questions you might have for us. If there's topics you'd like to hear about, you know, always free, free to connect with myself and, and, and my G on uh, social media. We'll be happy to connect and uh, get your feedback into input for future episodes. So, Mike, awesome chat, chatting with you as usual. Steve, great to connect with you. And for the audience, stay safe and secure. Thank you. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrae for Business by going to www.cybrae.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Thycotic, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit www.thycotic.com.